0: Uh, We're going to dismiss our kids to their classrooms and uh, let them enjoy their time, study this morning. Uh, My name is Weston. I'm one of the pastors here at Covenant Church. And we're really glad that you guys are here today. Thank you for uh, taking time on your Sunday morning and uh, spending time with us. Uh, We are in the middle of a series, a teaching series called Multiply. And the intention of this short series is sim- very simple. is that we would be reminded of Jesus' call to us to be disciples who make disciples. And so what we mean when we say that is, is that we would be followers of Jesus who are helping other people to follow Jesus. So, so very basic here. Just that we would be reminded that Jesus has called us to follow him, and, and yet he has also sent us to help other people to follow him. There's a pastor in Washington, D.C., named Mark Dever, and uh, he says, If you call yourself a follower of Jesus or a disciple of Jesus, but you're not helping somebody else to follow Jesus, then I don't understand what you mean. I'm not saying you're not a disciple, but discipleship in the Bible implies that you are actually pouring your life, your experience into somebody else so that they can grow and uh, mature. And so we all need to mature. We all need to grow. Uh, we all need to follow Jesus better. And we all need help in doing that. And I think something that happens in a lot of churches is that you have some people who are trying to follow Jesus And yet they aren't helping other people around them to follow Jesus. And so what happens is, is they get frustrated because they feel like no one else is kind of doing what they're doing. And that can become a toxic environment when we aren't recognizing that other people around us need our help. And that just by helping someone else doesn't mean that we individually have reached some kind of pinnacle of following Jesus. It, it just means, hey, hey, let me kind of show you what I've learned. Um, and so that's what we're talking about in this series. And I want to go ahead and jump right into today's text, which is found in the Gospel of Luke. And it's chapter 13 of Luke Luke 13, there were some present at that very time who told him, him is Jesus, who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. This is the word of God. So this is an interesting text to me because it describes a couple of events that we really don't know anything about a couple of events that we don't find anywhere else in the Bible. And the context here is that Jesus is out teaching and a crowd has assembled and some people in the crowd asked Jesus, I guess, kind of about his opinion on this horrific thing that has happened, this violent event that has taken place. And and what we just infer from what we just read is that Pilate, Pontius Pilate, the same Pontius Pilate that we see later on in the story of Jesus, that Pilate had apparently put some people, some Galileans, to death while they were either making or on their way to make sacrifices to God. And we, we don't know exactly what happened here, but but that seems to be what people were asking Jesus about. And, and Jesus' response to that question is really interesting, and, and it's, I think, an accurate picture of what would have been a common perception during Jesus' day and culture. Because it seems to be the opinion of the people in the crowd, uh, based on what Jesus asks them, that the people who died in this violent event must have done something horrible to warrant that kind of death. So this was perhaps a common cultural perception that if somebody died in some kind of really tragic or horrific or violent way, then in some way perhaps maybe this was God's retribution on them for being especially heinous sinners. And yet, how does Jesus respond to them? Um, Jesus Says, do you really think that these were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? And I, and I think, vis a vis to the crowd assembled, do you think you are less of a sinner than these people that died? Now, before we go forward, um, just to kind of bring this home real quick, do you believe, think about your own life, do you believe that you are less of a sinner? than somebody else that's out there? Maybe somebody else on your street or at your office, or do you, do you think that you are less of a sinner than someone else? I think if we're being honest, of course you do. Of course you do. Of course I do. I think we all have a pretty high opinion of ourselves, right? And, and, and we may Kind of rationalize some of our sin, we may go, yeah, listen, I know I mess up every now and then, but I'm not that guy, right? I haven't done that, you know, like, we'll say things like, you know, I've never killed anyone, right? So does that make you less of a sinner than someone else? And I think one of the things we have to notice here with Jesus is he isn't like quantifying sin, is he? He's not quantifying sin, He isn't saying, do you think those people sinned more on that day or that week or in that month than all the other Galileans? Do you think that like those people who died, man, they sinned like 10 times that day, but you maybe only sinned three times that day, and so you're still here with us? That's not what Jesus is doing, is he? He's saying, do you think that you are somehow less guilty of sin? than anyone else? Not have you sinned less, but are you less guilty of sin? And to that question, the answer is, well, of course not. We are all equally guilty before God of sin. That's what scripture teaches us. There are none who are righteous before God, for all have sinned and fall short of God's glory, and so Jesus goes on and he names like another horrific event. He says, "Well, what about that time that the tower of Siloam fell and crushed all those people?" Now, again, we don't we don't know what this event is. Like we don't really find this event in any other part of Scripture, but perhaps this was some part of the wall surrounding Jerusalem, and it had collapsed and killed a bunch of people. I think you could kind of insert your own disaster here. So, what about All those people that died in Hurricane Katrina or in that plane crash or in that house fire or or whatever, do you think that they were worse sinners? Do you think that they were more guilty of sin or punishment than you are? And he repeats that statement that is at the heart of all of this. He says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And this leads us to the question that we're asking today, and that is, what did Jesus mean when he said, I tell you, you must repent? So let's pray this morning and just ask for God's guidance as we seek to understand the truth of his word. Father, God, I pray this morning that as we encounter your word that you would speak it into our minds and our hearts. God, give us understanding today, not not only of, of what this means on an intellectual level, but Father, show us what this means for us as individuals. God, show us, speak into us the things that you would have us hear through your Holy Spirit this morning, Father. We love you. We give you honor and praise this morning in your name. Amen. So repentance is at the core of what Jesus is talking about. And and I think repentance is not a word that we hear as much in the church today. Any any older folks in here maybe agree with that? Maybe if you grew up in the church, do you feel like there was a time period in American history where we just heard more about that concept, that notion of repentance? I don't feel like it's something I hear a lot about today. I hear a lot about belief. I hear a lot about faith. I think that maybe those words have more positive connotations for us, whereas repentance maybe has some kind of negative connotation to us. Uh, maybe it conjures up like an error of uh, a hellfire and brimstone preaching where somebody was standing on a stage yelling at you to repent, right? That's what I think of, um, and, and yet here's the deal. Uh, We cannot avoid this word in the New Testament. We cannot avoid it in the teaching of Jesus. We can't avoid it in the teaching of the apostles. It was at the core of what Jesus and the apostles were calling the world to. And so even though it may be uncomfortable, maybe it may not give us the warm fuzzies that some other words might give us, we cannot avoid it. It is central to the appeal of Christ. The very beginning of Jesus' ministry. This is where he starts. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Now, after John, John the Baptist, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Matthew's account, Matthew 4.17, from that time Jesus began to preach. What did he say? He said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's not just Jesus. Peter echoes Jesus' words on the day of Pentecost as he preaches to thousands of people who have assembled. Acts 2:38, Peter said to them, What? Based on everything he had said, repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Paul, writing to the church in Rome, Romans 2.5, he says, It's because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant hearts that you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Paul says again, Acts 17, Acts 17, Paul is addressing men who are in the Areopagus in Greece, Athens, Greece. He says, "The times of ignorance got overlooked." But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given us assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Later on, Paul is before King Herod Agrippa, Acts 26. He's given his testimony. He's explained how he went from being Paul, this guy who wanted to see Christians murdered, to being Paul, this guy who is preaching the gospel of Jesus to Jews and Gentiles. And and here's what he says to Agrippa He says, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, then in all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. So, hopefully, you see, this is not some random, isolated thing that Jesus said once. This is Something that is repeated over and over and over again in the New Testament like 60 times. Jesus and the apostles in making the appeal of the gospel to the world are using this word. So this is core. Repentance in the way that Jesus mentions it is central. And so we have to ask, what did Jesus mean? What did Jesus mean when he said, repent? Now, I don't know that most of us actually fully understand this today, and I, I think, again, it shows some of that modern discomfort maybe with that word. We're not really digging into it. So, as we've said, repentance is apparently an essential component to believing the good news. We saw earlier that Jesus kind of yokes the words repent and believe together. And, and, I think the question we have to ask there is Is, is that some kind of mutually exclusive relationship? Or do, I, do both of those things have to be happening together? If there isn't repentance, then is there really belief? Or if there isn't repentance and belief, is there really faith in Jesus? And this is an important question because I think we see evidence often, especially in this part of the country where so many people have grown up in church, or so many people have some semblance of Christian belief. What does this mean? And, and what are we supposed to be calling people to as people who believe the gospel? I think there are a lot of people around here who claim to believe in Jesus, and I think they do to an extent. I, I, I think that there are people who believe facts about Jesus. Um, I believe Jesus was a real person right? I, I believe Jesus was the son of God. I believe Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. I believe that Jesus died and rose from the dead. I believe all of these facts about Jesus. And so if you were to ask them, do you believe in Jesus? Well, they would say, absolutely. Or if you were to call them to believe in Jesus, they would say, well, I already believe in Jesus. But here's the deal. Salvation, salvation is not based on you simply believing some facts about Jesus. Right? that's, That's not what Scripture says about salvation. Scripture says that salvation is based on what? Faith in Jesus. Not just ascribing to the list of things, theological beliefs or doctrinal beliefs about Jesus, not just affirming those things or agreeing with those things, but placing your faith in Jesus. And I think there are a lot of people around here who maybe kind of affirm or agree with a particular set of theological or doctrinal statements. But salvation isn't based on whether or not you can answer the questions correctly. Think about the Apostles' Creed. Um, We went through the Apostles' Creed here a couple years ago. Historic confession of theological and doctrinal belief. I believe in God, the Father, Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, blah, 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 blah. There are churches that recite that every week. There are people who grew up reciting that every week. Just because you have recited that does not make you a Christian. Just because you have said, I believe these things does not make you a Christian. You know, there are tons of things like that throughout Christian history. There's the Nicene Creed. There's the Athanasian Creed. There's the Westminster Confession. There are all of these things that churches believe. Now, all of those things are are core, right? If we have faith in Jesus, then it's important that we understand who Jesus is and what Jesus has called us to, but again... Are you tracking with me? Just believing facts about Jesus or agreeing with a particular statement or doctrine does not make you a Christian. Note, salvation is based on faith. Trusting in Jesus. Believing in Jesus. Not believing about Jesus. Believing in Jesus. And we have to ask ourselves, what was belief to first-century audience because some of us say that we believe in Jesus and what we're really saying is I accept and agree with what the Christian religion says about Jesus and and I recognize that there are another group of people out there who who don't believe in Jesus there are people out there who are skeptical about Jesus Um, but if that's what you mean then maybe belief is kind of a strange word to use there maybe maybe agree would be a better word But when some of you say, I believe in Jesus, what you really mean is, I trust Jesus. Not just, I think these things about him, but when some of you say, I believe in Jesus, what you mean is, I have confidence in Jesus. What you mean is, I've kind of given him everything. And that is more in line with what a first century listener would have heard when Jesus said repent and believe. Because that word believe in Jesus' context didn't just mean ascribing to a particular set of facts. It meant and denoted confidence. So when Jesus called people to believe the good news of the kingdom of heaven was coming near, um, he wasn't calling people to just agree with him that that was happening. He was calling people to have confidence in the fact that that was happening and that it was the greatest news that anyone could ever hear. And so here's the point. If there isn't repentance, then it really calls into question one's level of confidence regarding what they say they believe. If, If what you say you believe has not translated into some kind of fundamentally different way of living, then doesn't it call into question the level of confidence that you have in what you say you believe? But that word repentance may still be murky for you. So let's drill down a little bit. Let's dispel some misconceptions about repentance. Uh, first of all, repentance isn't only about sin. Uh, I, I find this fascinating, and, and I didn't realize this until I was studying this week, but Jesus never says this. Jesus never says, repent of your sins. That's what preachers say. I actually can't find that statement in the New Testament. Jesus says, repent it's one word. There isn't like a prepositional phrase that follows it. Um, Paul says things like repent and turn to God, but ultimately they are making statements, Paul, Peter, Jesus, in saying repent. It's not you just need to repent of one thing, you need to repent of your sin, it's just you need to repent. Peter, you need to repent. Paul, you need to repent And and I think for many of us, when we hear about repentance, what we think is, I need to be less sinful in my life. That repentance is about behavior modification. That what Jesus is calling us to when he says repent and believe is what, what he wants me to do is he wants me to be a better me. He wants me to be a better person. He wants me to be a more moral person. He wants me to be a less sinful person. I love this quote from Tim Keller, pastor in New York City. He says, everybody repents for their sins. Everybody. In every religion, there's nothing unusual about that. Even irreligious people repent of their sins. They see they've done something wrong and they say, I'm sorry, right? Everybody repents. That is not what makes you a Christian. There's more to that quote that we're going to look at in just a second. but hopefully you get his point. He's saying that being a Christian isn't about simply saying, I recognize that I've done some things wrong, God. I recognize that I haven't followed you in the way that you want me to. I feel badly about that, and so I'm going to try not to do that anymore. That's not repentance. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Uh, Just sinning less, again, back to that Text we looked at this morning, just sinning less is not what repentance is all about. And just sinning less does not make you less guilty of sin. And it also leads us to our next point. Uh, Simply feeling sorrow or remorse for our sin is not the kind of repentance that Jesus is primarily talking about. And some of you may be sitting there going, whoa, 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 that's what I thought repentance was. Right? I thought repentance. Was about like recognizing how horrible I am, that I'm just like this terrible, sinful, fallen person, and repentance is about me recognizing that and feeling terrible about that, um, and, and that that somehow I I, I just decide uh, to you know work on things. Well, well, that's not totally what Jesus means, and if you'll allow me to get real nerdy on you for a second, I just want to look at the original Greek. Text of the New Testament, which I think will give us some help here, because there are two basic words in the New Testament that are translated as repent or repentance. And the first word is metanoia. And, and metanoia is, and, and, and there's a cognate there. So metanoia means repentance, uh, metanoneo means repent. Those words are cognates of each other. This is what Jesus is saying when he's saying, repent and believe. And this word is defined as a transformative change of heart. A transformative change of heart, or a profound transformation. Notice it isn't just about feeling sorry for yourself or for your sin. It isn't even simply about feeling remorse for your sin. When Jesus says repent, when Paul says repent, when Peter says repent, what he is saying is undergo a profound transformation. Undergo a profound change of heart. The second word we find in the New Testament is the word metamelamai. And the word metamelamai means what we just talked about, which is painful sorrow or remorse. And so this is the word we find in Matthew 27, 3, when the gospel is describing how Judas felt after Jesus is arrested and then punished to death. The King James Bible says this, Matthew 27, 3, Then Judas, which had betrayed him when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself and brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. Now, hopefully we know the story of Judas, right? And hopefully we recognize that the way that the King Jimmy phrases it is not the way that we would phrase it today. We wouldn't say somebody repented himself, but yet that's how, from the 1600s, the King James Bible phrased it. I think the New, Te- New International Version actually gets at the heart of this. It reads this way. It says, When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. So, so what's happening here? Has Judas undergone a profound transformation? Well, just read on in the story of Judas, because what does he do next? He goes and kills himself, right? Is that, is that what you think of when you think of repentance, the kind of repentance that Jesus is calling us to? Is that what you think of when you think of like profound transformation in Christ? No, 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 no. That's this worldly sorrow and grief that leads to death. 2 Corinthians 7 8 through 11. This is Paul writing to the church in Corinth. He says, he had written them a letter. He told them they were terrible people and they needed to change. And then he writes them again, 2 Corinthians. And he says this, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, even though I did regret it. For I see that my letter grieved you, though only for a while. Now look, verse 9. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. Into metanoia. And did the repentance of Jesus, for you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. Verse 10, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas godly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. So Paul's saying there's godly grief and there's worldly grief and only one of those things leads to life. Only one of those things leads to metanoia, leads to repentance that is profound transformation. And this is key for us And Paul's saying, I'm overjoyed that you felt terrible for your sin, but I'm even more overjoyed at what that has produced. I'm even more overjoyed at the fruit of repentance because the fruit of repentance tells us that this repentance is real and it's godly. It's from him, this transformative change of heart. So this is in contrast to just feeling sorrow, this worldly grief. How many of you have ever encountered a situation in your life where you felt badly for what you had done, but you mostly felt badly that you had been caught? You still really love the thing that you were caught doing. And so ultimately there is not real transformation. You just hope you don't get caught again. Or you hope you don't feel that sense of embarrassment again. Maybe you see that with your kids. I'm sorry, but I'm not really sorry. How often have you responded to God in that way? And so Paul says I know there is transformation here because there is fruit. But grief isn't the only thing that Scripture says produces repentance. Romans two, Romans 2 4, Paul says, Or do you presume on the riches of God, the kindness, forbearance, and patience of God, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? And so it's not only a recognition of one's own sin that then leads to metanoia, to the repentance of Jesus, to godly repentance, but it's also seeing and recognizing and understanding and taking to heart what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Like, how amazing is it that when I consider who I am and what I've done and who God is and what his nature is like, when I consider the fact that he sent his only son to die for me, I'm so bold over by his kindness, because I don't deserve his kindness. I'm so bowled over by his kindness that what it results is is this profound transformation in my life. I've been so moved by his kindness. When I see who I am and who he is, I've been so moved by his generosity and his graciousness towards me. This is the beauty of, of the gospel. And these are all things that draw us to the heart of God. These are all things that draw us to him. And here's the point of all of this, guys. If we are going to be disciples, if we are going to be followers of Jesus who are helping other people to follow Jesus, then we have to understand what Jesus is calling us to, and then we have to call other people to the same thing. So this is the example of the New Testament as well. Not only do Peter and Paul call people to this, but Jesus at one point sends out the twelve into in, the disciples, into the villages. And what was the message that they took? Repent. It was the message of repentance that they took to the people that they encountered. So for us as followers of Jesus in today's world... The real fruit of repentance is the fruit that comes from transformation, whole life transformation based on not just believing things about Jesus, but based on confidence in the gospel, based on a trust in Jesus. And the real fruit of repentance is that it's not simply that I don't cuss anymore, right, or that I don't smoke anymore, right? The real fruit of repentance is, Is more than just moral change or just behavioral change. It isn't just that now I'm a nicer person or I live a little bit of a better lifestyle. No, the, re- the fruit of repentance is that fruit that comes from the confidence in the fact that I don't belong to this world anymore. I'm now actually a citizen of another world sent here as an ambassador of my king to this world. And so I want to live not the values of this world, but the values of the world that I actually belong to so that the people People of this world see and long for and come to understand and trust in the kingdom that is coming near. And so my hope is not here, it is there. And I don't just mentally agree with that, I'm staking everything on it and I'm like reorganizing my life around it. So as a result, I'm a totally different person than I was before, inside and out. It's not a mask, it's not a facade, it's not a show. That will only get you so far. Real repentance is inside out. Luke 3, Jesus encounters a Pharisee named Nicodemus, and this man comes to Jesus, and he says, look, I... I think it's clear here that you're some kind of holy man, like it's clear here that you are from God, that you have some kind of godly power, and Jesus says what to him? He says, truly, Luke 3, 3 Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This is Jesus saying, Repent. Truly, I say to you, unless there is profound change, transformation, stepping out of one world and into another world, leaving and renouncing your citizenship in one place and stepping into the coming kingdom, then you cannot see the kingdom, Jesus says. Some scholars have argued, I think convincingly, that the word repent is maybe, maybe not the best word for translating metanoia in at least today's world, that maybe a better word is actually the word convert or conversion, that Jesus is saying you must convert or you must transform. And, believe. and here's the audacity of the gospel message that we are sent to proclaim. It dares to tell you that you need to change. The audacity of the gospel that we are sent to call other people to is that it dares to tell you that there is something wrong with you. And that you need to change. And isn't this like the most offensive thing that you can do in our culture today? We live in this morally relativistic culture, this postmodern culture. Moral relativism says that there's no such thing as absolute truth, right? So, so something can be true for you. And something totally different can be true for me. And as long as you let what's true for you be true for you, and what's true for me to be true for me, and as long as you don't try to impose your truth on me, then we can all get along. That's, that's the world we live in, guys. And, and, and a lot of moral relativists think that this is the key to, like, unity in the human race. That if we can all just, like, bear along with other people, right, and let you do whatever you want to do, let you believe whatever you want to believe and just go, hey, that's truth for them and what's true for me is totally different, but I, I'm, I respect them, right? Like this diversity here, then everybody can get along. The problem with moral relativists is that the only people that they can't get along with are people who believe in absolute truth, right? Because the moment that I tell you that what you just said is not true, then, then I'm like a bigot. Right, and yet, guys, this is why Scripture says that the gospel is offensive, um, and so that's a challenge, right? Right, if we're going to be a people who take this kind of exclusive, absolute call and message to our world that that believes that things can, the truth is like this floating thing, isn't that a big challenge? For us, like, how do we actually do that? Well, the, the answer to that question is is that most of us don't do it, right? We're being honest. Most of us don't do it. It's a landmine. Like, most of us don't want it. We don't want the awkward conversation. We don't want to step into that weird space. But, but let me come back to what I asked earlier. What does that say about the confidence that you have in what you say you believe? If you're not even willing To endure an awkward conversation because you are so convinced that it is true. What does that say about us? You know, a lot of your friends and neighbors and co-workers, they think that way. And and so I just want to close out this morning... um, with a few quick thoughts on maybe how we actually call people to repent in today's culture, How, how do we call people to convert? Um, to trust not in themselves, but not to have confidence in themselves, but to be born again? Um, and, and so number one, I think we have to live a better story. And, and the reality is is that uh, when you start looking at statistics, people who call themselves Christians and people who don't call themselves Christians. Like, there's not a lot of difference there, right? You've all probably heard, like, the divorce statistics. Well, if you read the Bible, the Bible says things like, God hates divorce. And yet, you look at people who claim to love God and follow God, and you find that they get divorced just as often as people who don't love God or who don't think God's real. Like, there should be some enormous discrepancy there. Do we agree? And you can just start adding to that list. The ways that we do not live differently than anyone else in our world are the ways in which we diminish the gospel of Jesus that we are projecting out to people through our lives. We have to be people who live gospel lives, meaning lives that are based on our citizenship in another world, in another kingdom, not in America Not even on planet Earth, guys. We're we're talking about living in God's kingdom where things are upside down. You go back to the Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus going, you've heard it said this, but I tell you this. You've heard the world say this, but I tell you this. Hate your enemy, I tell you love your enemy. These are the values of the kingdom. Like These are the things that we're being called to live. And if we can't live that better story... Which is compelling and rich and different and exciting and bizarre and weird and countercultural. If we can't step into that space, then why in the world would anybody want to change? If our lives are just as miserable. Right. If we're just as unhappy, if we're just as like, depressed, if we're just as anxious, if our marriages suck, if, if our parenting sucks, if like, all of these things are all the same for everybody, if there's nothing different about us because we've been saved by Jesus and we now live in another world, then why would anybody transform? Why would anybody even desire that? Are, you, are y'all with me? Does that make sense? So, so we have to be different than the rest of the world. And, and not different in like this old school moralistic way where, well, we're different because we don't drink. No, that's not what we're talking about. Different in that we model the values of Jesus We model the values of the kingdom, and we want other people to see the gospel in and through that. Uh, Secondly, we have to demonstrate confidence in Jesus in our lives. If you call yourself a person of faith, if that faith is placed in Jesus Christ, if you're saying, that's where my hope is, that's where my eternity is, he he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, he gives me everything I have, anything, you know, all that stuff. If you believe that, then you've got to make decisions that are in line with that thinking. Right? Because other people are watching you, and, and you're just proving your hypocrisy in that. I, no, I'm not different than you in this. But if you say that my faith, my life revolves around the Messiah Jesus Christ who died and rose from the dead so that I might be adopted into God's family, all that is true, then how I parent my kids should be different how i make decisions about money should be different The way that I treat other people should be different. The way that I show other people that my trust is not in myself, my trust is not in my money, my trust is not in my stuff, my trust is not in my job, my trust is not in my family, or any of those things, or in the stock market, or my retirement, or any of that stuff, my trust is not in that stuff. All of that stuff will fade away. My trust is in something that is unending and eternal. We have to demonstrate that to people. We have to show people through our lives and through our decisions and through our actions that that is actually true. Three, we've kind of touched on this. We cannot just focus on moralism, right? So so here's what I mean by that. Uh, Jesus did not send out the apostles to change people's behavior, that was not their primary mission, was it? He said, I want you to go. I want you to go preach the gospel, right? I want you to go make disciples. I want you to teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you. But, but there's kind of an order to that, right, isn't there? Let's, let's make disciples. And the way we're making disciples is by teaching them to obey all things that I've commanded you. What the church does more often today is we demand moralistic living, or behavior modification from people who don't even claim Jesus, from people who aren't even claiming to be Christians. We demand that they live in the way of Jesus, and we are, um, we're turned off by them, we're appalled by them, uh, we distance ourselves from them, we boycott them when they don't behave like Jesus has called us all to behave. Now, here's, here's the problem with that. Those are the very people that we are called to take the gospel to. And so if we're going to separate ourselves from them because they don't behave the way that Jesus would have them behave, then we are totally missing the point. Are, are, is everybody following me? So, so, yes, there is fruit that comes from the transformed life. But if there is no transformation, then we are like just being unreasonable to expect fruit where there is no transformation, or to demand fruit where there is no transformation, or to push people away when there is no transformation, or to boycott when there is no transformation. And so, if we're going to approach our world with this message of the gospel— then we can't just focus on moralism. And then finally, we have to live unashamed. So um, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, famously. He says, why? Why am I not ashamed of the gospel? Because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And so because I believe that the gospel is the power to save everyone, not just Jews, but everyone, because I really believe that, then I am going to talk about it. I'm not ashamed of it. I'm not going to be worried about the awkwardness of it. I'm not going to be embarrassed by it. I'm going to be willing to go to jail Over it. I'm going to be willing to be stoned over it. I'm going to be willing to be thrown out of cities over it because I know it is the power of God for salvation. And so we have to live lives that don't just demonstrate a better story and don't just demonstrate confidence in Jesus and and, and don't just focus on the behavioral side of things, but living a life where we go, man, I really believe that this is true and the fruit of that transformation for me is that I'm not ashamed of it. I'm not going to not talk about it with you because it has so changed me. To finish out that Tim Keller quote from earlier, he said, You know, everybody repents. Even irreligious people repent. People see, I have done something wrong, and they feel sorry about it. He says, That does not make you a Christian. Here's what he says next He says, What makes you a Christian is when you repent of your righteousness. It's not when you feel sorry for your sin. What makes you a Christian is when you repent of being your own God. It's when you recognize, I'm a terrible God. And it's when you recognize, I actually have no righteousness of my own. It's when you recognize, I can't trust myself. It's when you recognize, I can't have Confidence in myself. Now, again, isn't this counter to what the world tells you about you? Trust your heart. Follow your dreams. All that junk. No, 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 no. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 64. Declaring the word of the Lord to the people of Israel, he says, look, all of us, he's not excluded from this, he says, all of us have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. It was true then, it is true now. Even our greatest deeds, even the nicest, most helpful things that we could do for anyone else without transformation, without the spirit of the living God living within us, it will not save us. And compared to the righteousness of Jesus, even our greatest deeds are like filthy rags. Repent. This is the message that we are called not just to adopt in our own life, but to take to our world. And as we seek to be disciples who are helping other people to follow Jesus, we all need to hear repent every day. Because every day I wake up and I think, you know what, I I wonder if my way is actually better. Or I don't think about it at all and I realize that my natural default is not to trust God, is to try to trust me. I need to repent. I need to transform. And so do you. Let's pray. Father, we... I say we, I, I confess this morning that I lose sight of this truth. I forget not only the goodness of your gospel, but there are parts of me that I just don't submit to you. And, and yet I believe, mentally, I know that you have called us to give you everything. And so I pray that this morning, through the power of your spirit, Father, that you would lead me to increasingly give you my heart, my life. And that for the people who are gathered here or who hear this, for this church community, Father, that we would be a people marked by the fruit of repentance. That people would see us and see something that is just dramatically different from the rest of our world. And that it would be compelling and life-altering. (laughs) Father, Father, We pray that through your spirit, you would daily remind us of who you are. And that we would see your gospel go out and change hearts and lives. Use us. We love you. It's in your name. Amen. Amen. Um, As we do most weeks, we have a time of communion this morning. And and here's here's what's so cool about this. This is something that Jesus has given us. And I think it falls right in place with everything that we've been talking about this morning. Because I think the purpose of this is to remind us. It's like a ritual to remind us of everything that we just talked about. Right? Right? that it's not about our righteousness, it's about God's righteousness. It's not about what we can do, it's about what he has done. And so here would be my, my encouragement to you this morning as we come to the table. The band's gonna play some music and, and I would just ask you to spend a few moments where you are and just repent, right? Like spend time in prayer with God say god i want to let go of myself and i want to give that all to you father may your spirit lead me to surrender everything Just spend some time with him this morning i'm going to be at the back luke and jason are going to be around as well if you'd like to pray with somebody or talk with somebody about what god's doing in your life please do please do um this is a time for believers if you're here this morning you're going I'm not sure I'm a believer uh, then it's okay to sit this one out um, but we would love to dialogue with you about that and uh, just uh, answer any questions that you might have and so I hope that you'll uh, take that opportunity this morning